This is the Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. This year, the Leadership Institute launched this new program for conservatives interested in running for school board or being involved in school board campaigns. Our podcast features faculty members from the new school board campaign training and other expert guests discussing how to design, wage, and win successful school board campaigns. You can learn more and take the program online at leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. I'm Ron Nearing. Welcome to the latest episode of the Learn Right podcast, the official podcast of the Leadership Institute's School Board Campaign Training uh, Program. I'm here today with Melvin Adams of the Noah Webster Educational Foundation. They're doing some fantastic work in terms of promoting education uh, reform and helping to ensure that we have good quality people uh, running for school board and involved in public education in America. So Melvin, welcome to our program. Thank you, Ron. Let's go right into it. What is that you see are some of the biggest challenges facing public education today, and how are you offering solutions and ways to improve that situation with respect to those big issues? Okay, that's a great question. So I guess we look at it this way. Everything in education is driven through leadership and legislation. Those are the two big issues. Um, And so I guess right there also lies some of the biggest problems in public education today. Uh, When you look at it as a whole, there are a lot of fantastic people in that space, a lot of great teachers, a lot of great even administrators and so on. And there are some great school board members and other people in leadership, but there are enough people in leadership that are not heading down the right track that, uh, in our opinion, uh, they're just taking, taking the whole thing in a direction it should not go. So it's not a problem so much of resources, is it? Because no. American, America is spending more money per student in public education than any country in the civilized world, but we're not getting the same results. So uh, when you talk about failures of leadership, at at what level do you see those failures? And then what are you doing at the No Webster Education Foundation to improve that? Okay. So, you know, the leadership issues really, I mean, so it's, it's always about making the right decisions that get to the root causes of problems, right? That's how we fix things. Good leaders are able to do that. Not just, you know, Here's an example. For example, you have a failing school, and too often the solution is give us more money and we do a remodel job and put in a new sports field and people drive by and they say it looks awesome. Look at the progress they're making, but they have not fixed the core problem. It's still a failing school. Um, and so that that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to focus on, and, and we deal in our, our – we kind of see five big big areas in education. Uh, So it's the role of instruction, which that's all inclusive. There's the role of parents. There's the role of government. There's the role of faith and morality or character development. And then there's the role, what we call it, facilities, because most people identify money with stuff. But we're really talking about budget appropriations. Are we spending money where it actually needs to go to fix things? What we are doing, we 
talk into those spaces. Uh, we have a blog. We have other things that we're trying to do to communicate um, because our target audience are parents and grandparents, educators, and legislators. We feel like if we can get communicate with them and not just curse darkness, but be solutions-oriented and bring real well-researched information to their attention around these five areas, um, we can start shaping a mindset. Now, along with that, sometimes you just have to move people out of the way and put better people in. And so that's, of course, where some of our partnership with Leadership Institute on school board trainings and other kinds of things. One of the challenges is that responsibility for public education is so diffuse over so many different areas. You have the federal government playing a role. You have state government playing a role. You have local school boards. Uh, and responsibility is kind of all over the place. And it yeah. seems that when the schools are doing well, uh, this system allows all the politicians to take credit for it. Uh, and when things are not going well, everybody can blame somebody else. And it really makes it harder to get things done. I remember when I was on uh, the high school district board in San Diego County, California, in a, in a district in the county, uh, we had to contend with a state law that it was designed to make it impossible for us to contract out for non-instructional services like landscaping mm -hmm. or food service. Now, people would say that it is not a core competency of a school district to do busing or landscaping or uh, or um, uh, or food services and so on. There are other people who are better at that. Mm -hmm. And if we have the ability to contract out to the private sector to do those things, it introduces a measure of competition because you'd have one vendor competing against another. Correct. And any savings could go to put more money in the classroom for what we are supposed to have a core competency in doing. But we have a state law that prevents us from doing that. Policy. Uh, 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 <laughs> we cannot contract out effectively. Yeah. It doesn't say that, but the, but the net effect. And, of course, the bill was championed by the union that represents non-instructional right. personnel and right. many school districts so that it would eliminate the possibility that the district might contract out for the service and they might contract out to a non-union firm, even if they can do mm -hmm. a better job. So even though I was on a school board, we were denied that tool to make better use of the educational dollars that we had. And therefore, there wasn't even the possibility of disciplining the system mm -hmm. through, the through maybe even raising the possibility that we could contract out. How much of, uh, of a problem do you see this diffuse uh, responsibility uh, for education? And what is your approach to improving leadership, even though the the, the problem and therefore the solution is scattered across so many yeah. bodies of government. Great question. So l let's expand on the question and the, and the problem just a little bit more. I mean, uh, some people don't realize it, but every state has their own system of education that is regulated by their constitution and their statutes, and then you break it down into local communities and sometimes there are additional things there so you're right it's very diffuse and how how do you I mean you can't just paint everything with a big stroke brush that's where I think we have to come back to addressing things from a principle 
standpoint. Um, your example is a classic example of how legislation can work for you and for education and for students and schools, or it can work against you. Um, you know, I mean, it just makes sense. If you were a private businessman, your goal is profit and having the best product, being truly competitive, being the best, right? That's how you're going to succeed. Our schools have to have that same mindset, but unfortunately, a lot of times they don't either because public education, let's just face it, it is a monopoly in this country, okay? That's a problem all by itself that some of us think needs to be addressed as a foundational issue. Uh, but beyond that, you know, having people in those communities, people who run for state legislature or people who understand those principles and can address getting enough pressure put at the right points where those bad policies can get reversed. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the way our American system works. So there is a role at the state level to make improvements in education, not only uh, at the school board level, because the school board can, in many cases, only operate within the confines right. of what the state allows them to do. Uh, we had a second example that's just so brazen, I just have to share it, uh, in that at one point, this is after I was on the board, but in the judgment of the unions, too many school districts had too much money in reserve. Mm. And, uh, and therefore, the state came along and passed a law basically requiring school districts to th shove out the door uh, all but a small amount of a reserve so that districts were not allowed to have a proper rainy day fund and, and preserve funding, even though there are times when the state was in a budget deficit that school funding was threatened. Mm -hmm. and, and so here's another example where, well, the school district, the school board is given responsibility for adopting a budget, uh, but the state comes along and attaches so many strings to that. Well, you can't keep a reserve or you can't keep a reserve above a, of a certain small amount so that all that money can instead go to salaries to, uh, to pay to um, – uh, uh, that ultimately goes back into the pockets of – teachers' unions through more unionized workers and higher dues that they can charge and so on and so forth. And the kind of mission of education kind of gets lost in the process, right? It's mm -hmm. all of this tussle over budgets and rules and so on that the amount of bandwidth that can be spent on actually improving the quality of the instruction can kind of be you know, we, we, we're kind of off mission here in terms of what, what, what we can spend time on. Isn't that, do you yeah, see that? I do. And uh, it doesn't escape me that both of these examples, when you started, you talked about the union and their influence to make these policies happen. Um, I think everybody needs to listen to that. And, uh, you know, look, there are places and times when unions may be effective and may be useful uh, for the good, uh, but sometimes the unions get, the unions are there, we have to remember this, the unions are there to represent the folk who have contracted them. The unions do not really represent education. 
They represent the people who have contracted them to fight for their benefits and for their protections and whatnot. <clears throat> and so I think, you know, when it, when it comes right down to it, often that is a big driving force in shaping education policy. And that's why I think equipping parents as well as educators, because educators, this is their life. They don't go into that space typically because they want to become a bureaucrat. They go into that space because they love children, they love learning, and they want to help make a better community. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, though, parents and educators, and sometimes even legislators, they really, they depend on people to give them information. They don't know all these things themselves, and they're just pressured sometimes by whether it's unions or other entities. Uh, that's where I think some of us have to step up and provide alternate resources so that they can think about these issues from maybe different perspectives. Right. When I, so I'm 51 years old, and when I think about my life, some of the people who I have the highest opinions of mm -hmm. were my teachers from sure. elementary. And I went to all public education from K through 12, and I'm a graduate of a state university in New York. And the professors I had in university or uh, the teachers I had K through 12 were wonderful, sure. wonderful uh, people. I, I cannot say enough great things about some of the wonderful teachers uh, who, who I had. Um, and at the same time, um, somebody has to be looking out for the students and the interest of the students and not only the employees of the district. Right. Like somebody in this process has to be, uh, has to represent the interests of the students to make sure that we are getting a world-class education mm -hmm. that, uh, that government is already paying, that taxpayers are already funding. Um, education spending in America is at world-class standards, yeah. the products or not. Uh, and so if you have one entity, which is the, the labor union officials, if they control their side of the bargaining table and then through their political action uh, are successful in controlling the other side of the bargaining, collective bargaining table, well, then where does the interest of parents come in there? And one example that comes to mind, I know I keep drawing on these examples, but, yeah. you know, it's California, so there are plenty of bad examples. In, in my district... We had 11 high schools, and um, it turns out that one of the things I learned is that when the district has lots of money, uh, the uh, collective bargaining process focuses on compensation, how much money uh, are, is being paid to the, to the employees. Mm -hmm. But when the district doesn't have money, then the collective bargaining process shifts to workplace rules, yeah. which are specified in the bargaining agreement, because the bargaining agreement is not only about compensation, but it's also what the work rules are. Right. Well, I wanted to explore the possibility of offering more foreign languages to our students beyond just Spanish and mm -hmm. maybe French or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we had a provision in our collective bargaining agreement that says, well, you cannot require a teacher to teach at more than one school. Well, what happens if we wanna offer instruction in German or in Chinese? we don't have enough demand at one school to fill three classes a day, but we might have enough demand at one school for two classes and another school for one class. And we had two high schools who were just literally right down the road from each other. In fact, right. 
in two different parts of the district, high schools are located down the road from one another. Well, can we hire someone and offer uh, these classes or maybe other specialty classes in engineering or STEM classes, et cetera? But nope, the bargaining agreement didn't allow it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so it, 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 we cannot overlook, it seems to me, the aspect of those collective bargaining agreements and how they, can, they affect more than just whether teachers are being paid well, but the work rules can affect the quality of the instruction, right? Absolutely right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting the way you've shaped that. I would, I would argue, because you talked about we need somebody that would represent the children and the students, and, of course, that brings in the parents, obviously. But I would ar- argue that perhaps a solid majority of rank-and-file teachers would advocate for their students. They love their kids. They, they, and, and people who are passionate about teaching Chinese, most of them, they're looking for opportunity. Mm-hmm. They love what they do. They love helping more students gain that knowledge, and they don't mind at all teaching at this school on certain days and going down, you know, 20 right. miles away to another school. Why? It's opportunity. You know, people that are passionate about what they do, they're looking for opportunity. They want to have more impact. And you see, I think that's where, that's what we have to help people get back to and understand that fundamentally, that's what makes great schools and great education. And the, I'm going to use this expression, the bullying of bargaining uh, agreements and negotiations are done through a bureaucratic process that doesn't really engage the whole team. It engages top leadership and it engages things that are controlling so that they actually shape and control the end product. And I don't think any of that happens just by chance. There, there's strategy in that yeah, whole th- thing. There's a dichotomy there that uh, that you really uh, touched on, and uh, and I notice it in that if I think about those teachers I mentioned who taught me when I was a kid and how much I just you know have so much respect and love for them. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, I have seen political mail come in my mailbox, funded by a teachers' union, mm-hmm. that was literally the most offensive, the most, some of the most bigoted, nasty, way over the line political mail. It was about a community college district election, which is still education, right? It's just one level above high school. Mm -hmm. And it is really the most humiliating, embarrassing things for me to see that an American produced this mail, that somebody, a hack, at, a, at the local, at a, at a teacher's union that purports to represent educators would produce this utterly bigoted garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, to that, and it is overly simplified to say that all educators and all teachers are represented uh, by, you know, by something like that. Because I think that if, uh, if teachers actually saw this political mail that went out and viciously attacked uh, a very good uh, upstanding candidate uh, in the most vicious personal ways, 
uh, that the vast majority of teachers would never approve of that. Uh, You're right. In that, uh, uh, but it's uh, but they're not the ones who were in charge. Mm-hmm. It's uh, these operatives who were in charge, and so that's a different element here. So this is education is complicated, and that's part of the reason why we have this podcast. Yeah, um, and of course you've got the dynamics that go on in the schools. And you got the dynamics that go on in legislation. We're in Virginia. The legislation is going on right now. The legislature is in session. Just yesterday, I received a message here uh, from the VSBA, okay, school, Virginia, Virginia School Board, school board Association, Association and, uh, and they're putting out this blast about a particular bill that was conservative that, you know, was, you know, pro uh, parental involvement in education and so forth and, and conservative leaning. And, you know, they're bashing it. And, you, I mean, it just, you know, they're saying, that, you know, call your senators, tell them not to vote, to vote no and all that kind of stuff. It, it's their political action. And, of course, you know, the way that they present it is completely opposite of what I would see that bill. If you look at the reading of the bill and what it actually says, the purpose of it, what it's trying to accomplish, you know, and and it's completely twisted in what they're saying here. And so, I mean, that's part of the dilemma, right? It's It's divide and conquer. It's you know, everybody's truth is their own truth. But ultimately, I, and I don't believe that, but, but at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, you create spin to get what you want done. And that's partly the terrible side of politics. And that's why so many people don't want to get close to it. I, I was reading uh, an article uh, online uh, within the last couple of days from a left-leaning news outlet leave it at that, uh, that characterized that uh, the, the current level of interest by conservatives and parents at what's happening in the school boards, mm-hmm. it characterized that these traditionally non-controversial, non-partisan, sleepy school boards have suddenly become a hotbed you know, for politics and so on, as if this is some brand new development uh, and that as if everything was all, you know, sunshine and Skittles until recently. And now that these parents are really concerned about what's happening in schools, uh, that only now, uh, and of course it framed it all that this was the fault of parents and conservatives and and, and just parents who want to know what's happening in school. Uh, And I found that so outrageous that they would characterize it that way because I really think that they, they know better. Everybody yeah. knows better that uh, it is not new to have school board elections. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're really nasty. Like nobody wants to have nasty yeah. elections, but that's part of the political <laughs> process. Uh, and it was just astonishing. And uh, and you also see efforts from the radical left to portray what I think are common sense reforms uh, in in the most nefarious light possible, akin to what you're saying right now. Mm-hmm. For example. Uh, there are efforts to introduce bills in some states to uh, to have uh, school curriculum published online. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me that that curriculum is being paid for with taxpayer dollars. Sure. Uh, and it shouldn't require filling out a Freedom of Information Act request through an attorney to yeah. find out what is what being taught in school. But <laughs> well, yeah. why wouldn't you yeah. put that put that up online? That sure. that work product is uh, is. Uh, it, is, is paid for by the taxpayers. Now, of course, no one should be harassed or bothered, et cetera, right. because of, uh, of that. However, 
I think it's a confidence building measure to have, uh, you know, it, it makes it a lot harder to spread rumors about what's being taught in school if the lesson plans are simply published online for sure. everyone to see. Then people can actually see for themselves, nope, that rumor is false. That's, they're, they're not teaching that uh, yeah. in school. You know, I absolutely agree with you there. Uh, you know, I think, you know, if there's any upside to COVID, it brought schools home and parents started seeing what their kids were being taught. Um, some of us have known this for a long time and have mm. been trying to bring attention to it, but it was like it was going on deaf ears. So it's but, not just what uh, <clears throat> the student brings home in the backpack. No. Now it's all it's actually it's on all screen. Right Maybe there. parents are seeing it. That's and right. So on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's been a positive thing, in my opinion, because now parents are awake and saying, wait a second, this is not what I thought my child was getting. And so I think that engagement is very good. Um, and in fact, if I, I'm just going to throw this out here. Uh, there is actually a documentary that's coming out next month. Uh, fantastic! I've seen the whole thing, and uh, and it, the title of it is "Whose Children Are They?" Mm. It's excellent, and be happy to share more information with yeah, you. As a matter of fact, uh, the recent Virginia governor's election turned in part on the assertion by. One of the candidates, Terry McAuliffe, asserting mm-hmm. that parents had no role in their children's education. Uh, and uh, that, that view seemed to have been rejected yep. uh, by many, many parents uh, who find that outrageous. Now, I'm on your website at nwef.org. That is the Noah Webster Educational Foundation, nwef.org. Tons of great information uh, here. You. But you are promoting an upcoming conference. Uh, can you tell us what's happening on February 24th? Who's invited? Who can come? How can people attend or be part of it? And what's the value that's going to come from that? This is in Saturday, February 26th Correct. in Lynchburg, Virginia. All right. So here's what, you know, look, we're not a political organization. We are a public charity. Our focus is to educate, to inform, to help people, to give people tools and resources so that they can do a good job. What what I have seen, though, is so often people work really hard. They get elected. We encourage people to run, to do things, you know, as, as individuals and as citizens in our communities. The problem is once people get elected, we move on to the next thing. And what I have noticed is, you know, what, what, what people who get elected to office really need are resources that they can tap into that are not just the resources of their association, for example, okay? And so I thought, you know what, this is an off-year election for school boards in Virginia, so there weren't a lot of races, but there were some significant shifts in, in our school boards in, in Virginia this year uh, because more conservative-leaning candidates ran, and some of them even as write-ins, and defeated their, their opponents. And so I thought, you know, what we need to do is provide a training, a a resource day, so that these individuals can understand that there are other organizations that have all kind of resources that can be helpful to them as they are wading through the challenges of their job. And so so that they can, you know, I'm a firm believer in public-private 
partnerships. You talked about, you know, your, your role before where, you know, whether it's mowing the grass or the kitchen or whatever, but there are many, many other things that, that public-private partnerships can bring value to the community. Sometimes, uh, you know, your school board, um, you're, you're dealing, let's say, with, I'm going to use a word that maybe isn't PC, but deadbeat parents, okay? And so what's happened is, is the school system is now providing meals and everything for everybody because you have some that some children who really need that who are being neglected who are being totally neglected and unfortunately that problem then falls on a school board and so now they're you know but then what happens is the boomerang tends to go the opposite direction and now it's free lunch for everybody and and why is that it's because you follow the money and it becomes a lucrative thing right right and so what's a, a, a problem problem that needed to be fixed ended up being a bigger problem perhaps because now taxpayers are playing, paying for everybody. I mean, you, let's go a whole different direction. Health care, okay? Schools are running their own clinics and, and the kids are di- getting all their health care and stuff a lot of times right out of your school system where, you know, and, you know, Parents sometimes don't even know what's going on there. And so what I'm saying is through those kinds of things, by addressing really going back to the root issue, so sometimes there are public-private partnerships that can be developed where you can engage parents and help parents really – I believe most parents really want to be excellent parents. They want the best for their children. And either they don't know how, they've never had it modeled for them, or they have some other issues, dependencies or something that are keeping them from being what they want to be. Look, let's go back to some of these root things. And and I'm just throwing that as an example. There are entities that can come alongside and provide a service that if properly engaged – really doesn't cost the system money, but they start fixing problems outside of their system instead of just throwing money at everything. And I, I use that just as an example. There are many things that we can focus on. So that's what this event's about. We're bringing a coalition of different groups. This is a first time that we're doing this. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We hope to refine it. And if it goes well, uh, we probably will want to look at going across the country in different states. And, and I think this is a big area of need. And the response we're getting is that, that it is. Well, it's very exciting. Your school board summit, Equipping New Leaders for Positive Impact, is the theme of it. Uh, you have a, a, a website. Can you give us a yeah, website? A, a direct link to that is www.summit.nwef.org. Summit.nwef.org. That brings you directly to the dedicated page for this conference, February yeah. 26th in Lynchburg, Virginia, I think it's going to be a great program. I've taken a look at the partner organizations, very credible, lots of great information to be had there. I remember when I was a new school board member, you know, and you're brand new on the board, you, you know, you want to do a good job, mm-hmm. and you kind of look forward to others in terms of where do you get information from and so on. Then, of course, it, the natural pathway as well, you know, you should go to the California School Boards Association meeting and you should join sure. that and so on. And they, 
they f- serve a purpose uh, and sure. they do certain things, but they also come up with a particular point of view. And the State School Boards Association may not uh, point you to all of the various resources, c- credible, good, solid resources, which are out there right. uh, because of various considerations and history and relationships and so on. Uh, you know, when I was a school board member, I wanted to get as much money to the classroom as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't. I wanted to make sure that we had good quality meals in the cafeteria and that the grounds all looked good and that our busing was, you know, uh, of, of course, good, safe drivers and so sure. on. But at the same time, I also recognized that uh, on average, when a public entity builds a square foot of a building, uh, the public entity, the government entity, winds up paying 30% or more for that same square foot if you were to build mm-hmm. the same thing on the private sector because of government rules. Yeah. And so we have to be able to tear the, some of the, these impediments down that artificially drive the cost up and thus drive take money out of the classroom, which could otherwise could go in there. And so I'm, I'm excited to see all the resources that you're going to have available at this upcoming, uh, your upcoming summit on January I'm sorry, on, uh, on the 26th, 26th of February mm-hmm. in Lynchburg, uh, Virginia. Um, ha- what is the mission of the Noah Webster Education Foundation? How can people get involved? Uh, and uh, and let's provide that information to people before we wrap up. So in a nutshell, our vision for the organization is to reclaim education and culture through foundational principles and sound policy. To reclaim education and culture through foundational principles and sound policy. And so where where do we go for that, right? So as we were thinking about this over the years as we were shaping this concept, I got thinking, okay, when when this nation was founded, there were great leaders who, who set everything in motion. And among them was a man called named Noah Webster. He was, so to speak, one of the founding fathers. He was contemporary with the founding of this nation. He's the one that wrote the American dictionary, uh, English dictionary for Americans. And, and the whole purpose was to create a language that everybody could use because people were coming from Europe. And so we had German speaking, we had French speaking, we had all this. And he said, we need to have a common language. And he's the one that first started introducing schools and so forth. And so out of his, when you go and look at his 18, uh, uh, 1827- was it dictionary? Yeah, 1828, uh, American Dictionary of the English Language. Uh, his definition of education is very interesting. It's not what you see in dictionaries anymore. Let's hear it. So here's what it says. The bringing up as of a child, instruction, formation of manners, education comprehends all that series of instruction and discipline which is intended to enlighten the understanding correct the temper, and form the manners and habits of youth, and fit them for usefulness in their future stations. So out of that, we boiled it down to three things that he really addresses. Impart knowledge, develop character, and equip students for a useful place in society. And I think if we would get back to those three core principles those three focuses in education, uh, I think we'd see a healthy reform. 
when, uh, when an institution tries to do everything, often it winds up doing nothing very well. Right. And uh, the mission, the responsibilities get diffuse, the metrics get lost, uh, the focus gets lost, and, and, uh, and so on. So I applaud you, and we at Leadership Institute applaud you for all the great work that you're doing. Uh, Melvin Adams is the president and founder of the Noah Webster Educational Foundation, nwef.org. They have a great conference coming up in Lynchburg, Virginia. On February 26th, uh, we look forward to continuing to promote that and encourage people thank you. to participate in that. And thank you very much for joining us. It's been my privilege. This wraps up another episode of the Leadership Institute's campaign training podcast for school board candidates and those supporting school board candidates. Leadership Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation dedicated to giving conservatives the tools they need to fight and win in the public policy arena. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a tax-deductible contribution online at leadershipinstitute.org slash donate. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.